The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. The question here is whether any of the commitments that I collected qualify as agreements or compacts in the constitutional sense. And if they do, whether congressional consent was required and obtained. Those are the main legal questions that arise under the Constitution. Sort of more tangential, but nevertheless relevant, are questions about preemption. So there are a variety of Supreme Court cases over the course of U.S. history that have made clear that federal treaties, federal statutes, and even federal foreign policy can preempt and render invalid any state activities uh, in foreign relations that conflict uh, with the the applicable treaty or statute or policy. And so the question there is whether, whether any of these commitments might conflict with uh, you know, a federal statute or foreign policy that is in place, even if they don't violate Article 1, Section 10. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 20th, 2022. Over the past two decades, the Chinese government has cooperated extensively with U.S. state governments on economic issues replacing Canada as the country with the most diplomatic relations with U.S. states. To discuss how we got here and what it means for U.S.-China relations, former Lawfare Managing Editor Jacob Schultz sat down with Ryan Scoville, professor of law at Marquette University Law School, to discuss new evidence that sheds light on the nature of the relationships between China and U.S. states. Jacob and Ryan discussed the lack of public discourse and transparency around these arrangements, and how this subnational diplomacy has allowed China to acquire cutting-edge American technology. They also discussed what Congress should do to ensure federal monitoring and public discourse of future arrangements. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 22nd. Ryan Scoville on the role of subnational diplomacy in China's pursuit of U.S. technology. So we'll dive into the different component parts of all this and, and give more context as we go, but. I want to start in the same way that you started your lawfare piece, which is sort of with a, a news hook. And that's that the Chinese government has been signing into agreements with different U.S. states related to all sorts of different things like technology transfers and all sorts of other things like that. Could you spell out at a really high altitude what's going on here? And then we'll sort of move into the different different parts and into your research. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's really fascinating, actually. I think the headline is that over roughly the last two decades, China, both its national government and various provinces, have entered into a collection of over 100 written commitments with U.S. states to facilitate cooperation, primarily on economic issues. And in doing so, China appears to have replaced Canada as the country that has the most extensive relations, diplomatic relations with U.S. states. That is a significant historical shift uh, over the course of the last several decades, at least as far back as anyone's been paying attention. Canada and Mexico have kind of been leading the way in terms of uh, the volume of their interaction with U.S. state governments to address issues. But now it appears to be China. That's a big change. But even more importantly, I think a, a material portion of these commitments, well over a dozen, uh, expressly promote cooperation, collaboration, and even technology transfer in strategically sensitive fields of innovation, including information technology, nanotechnology, aerospace, semiconductors. These are areas where the federal government has been actively trying to protect U.S. technological leadership, and yet they appear to be areas in which states have been kind of going in the opposite direction, in a sense, that is, actively facilitating the diffusion of this technology to America's chief geopolitical rival. 
Uh, what's more, most of this activity has been carried out uh, seemingly without any federal approval, without any consultation with the State Department, and even without the State Department knowing about it, and without the public knowing about it, right? The, the states have not been uh, forthcoming for the most part in terms of disclosing these commitments to the general public or the federal government. And so for people listening to this who who don't follow the space as closely as you do or you know who are generally not tracking this stuff all that closely, I think just on a basic level, there's there's some level of surprise here, right? That it is in fact a thing that that states, you know, individual US states will enter into agreements with other countries. Could you just, you know, talk about like the history of that, the what it means as like a general practice, just describe, you know, generally like what is happening mechanically when, when these states are doing this. Sure. Well, you're certainly right that I think most people have just the assumption that when it comes to foreign relations, it's all about the federal government. And for the most part, that's true. Uh, you know, obviously the federal government uh, is in charge of, you know, treaty making or the use of military force. These sorts of responsibilities are allocated exclusively to the federal government. But it's also well-established and has been for quite a long time that states also engage in various forms of interaction with foreign governments. This practice dates back to at least the early 19th century, uh, and it appears to have become quite common in the mid-20th century. I think in the 70s and 80s in particular, we saw the rise of a lot of so-called sister state agreements between various U.S. states and various foreign governments. So all states do it. They do so in volume. And for the most part, it's not terribly controversial. In fact, the possibility of these agreements is even spelled out explicitly in the Constitution itself. So the framers of the Constitution envisioned that there would at least be some circumstances in which U.S. states need to interact with foreign governments to address the needs of their citizens. And what traditionally, like, you know, before we get into the 21st century, What's sort of the archetypical agreement that we're thinking about here? Like when you, you know, over the course of doing your research, what sort of feels like the the exemplar of, of what this was before we get to the either the back half of the 20th century or into the 21st century? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the exemplar probably is this is the sister state agreement. These are non-binding uh, arrangements that seek to promote cooperation in general terms between the the U.S. state and whoever the foreign counterpart might be. So whether that's cultural cooperation or cooperation in, you know, between educational institutions or economic ties, the basic purpose of these sorts of sister state agreements is to establish stronger relations across a wide variety of issues. And these these were the most common early on uh, when commitments with foreign governments started to become a regular thing uh, in the mid-20th century. Um, and they still are common today. In fact, uh, you know, part of my research, a significant part of it was the finding that uh, a lot of the commitments that are emerging in recent years are still taking this form of sister state agreements. That said, there are a lot of other uh, newer forms uh, and issues that these commitments are now addressing in recent years. So reading through your both your lawfare piece and the law review article that it's based on, it seems like the argument here is in some cases, yeah, there, there's substantive things about the nature of these agreements that might you know, give us pause, particularly from a U.S. foreign policy perspective. And we'll dive into that, that side of things later on. But your main contention, I think, reading through both pieces seems to be that the big problem, as you mentioned at the top, is that we just don't know a whole lot about this, right? It's this fundamental lack of transparency. Could you talk a bit more about like where does that come from and, and what, how does it present itself? Yeah. So, so first, just to uh, underscore your point, I, I think no one has really had a clear picture for how common these commitments are, for which states are signing them, for who the foreign governments are, for what issues they're addressing in the commitments, um, and even for whether they're they're legal, whether they're uh, compliant with the Constitution. And I think there are a variety of contributors to this general lack of information that has existed. For one, there's no requirement in federal law for states to disclose their commitments to the public or to share them with the federal government. There's no statutory provision that says that, you know, when California goes out and enters into an arrangement with with the Chinese government, uh, it has to share the text of the resulting commitment uh, with the State Department. So that's part of the reason. Another contributor is that there's really no transparency regime at the state level. 
North Carolina and California have uh, statutes that, that they have enacted that uh, help to maintain executive state executive branch oversight of these commitments. But as far as I can tell, there is no state law in any state that requires states to systematically disclose their commitments to the general public, you know, on a website or otherwise. And that's quite different from what we see at the federal level. You know, there are uh, official compilations of treaties and international agreements that are published by the federal government online and otherwise uh, that make it relatively easy for the public to look up international agreements that the federal government has entered into with foreign countries. That is not true when it comes to these state commitments with foreign governments. And then yet a third contributor uh, beyond the lack of uh, a transparency regime at the federal or state level is, I think, just decentralization. Some states have posted information uh, online, but it's been pretty ad hoc. It's been by a limited number of state agencies. It's been scattered across a large number of websites. And so it's been difficult to track that. You know, there's no single website that you can go to, even insofar as states are making these disclosures, to get a sense for the volume and diversity of the most recent state practice in this area. So that's a good segue into your research. So let's talk about your research project, right? So we're in this atmosphere where there's a real dearth of information. And methodologically speaking, like how did you and, and your researchers go about counteracting that? Yeah, so um, I've been a fan for a while of using freedom of information laws to try to gain insights on legal questions. Oftentimes, I think in legal research, the focus has been on federal FOIA, and that's a very valuable uh, activity. But I thought that perhaps it would be useful to use state public records laws, state freedom of information laws, to try to collect information about the commitments that are currently in force. So in 2020, uh, my research assistant and I we got together, we made a list of all of the state, uh, all of the significant executive departments and agencies in each of the 50 states. And we sent a public records request to every one of them. This was a total of over 650 of these requests that we sent out. And in each request, we asked uh, the recipient to provide us with copies of every written commitment, every written agreement, compact, accord, memorandum of understanding, whatever you want to call it, we asked for copies of all these that were currently in force, and we waited for states to respond. And for the most part, the states were surprisingly prompt and transparent in delivering the documents that were responsive to our requests. You know, as a, generally speaking, it was a matter of just you know a, a week or two uh, before we received documents, uh, and a large number of these state agencies actually had responsive records in their possession. I think roughly twenty percent said that they had records and delivered them to us. Uh, the other roughly 80% generally responded by saying that they didn't have any documents of any kind. But either way, they were quite responsive in making clear uh, what they had in their possession. Another One complication we encountered, though, in carrying out this activity was that some states, uh, I think it's Delaware, Virginia, Tennessee, Alabama, uh, I think there are one or two others in there, uh, have requirements in state law that say that you can only file a public records request if you're a citizen of the state. And so we had to find in-state agents to basically file requests on our on our behalf. So we, we used that additional step to make sure that our requests covered all of the 50 states. But the result was a very large collection of commitments, larger than we expected, frankly. We didn't know what we were going to receive when we began the project. We thought that, you know, there was a good chance that it might not really turn up anything at all. Uh, but the, re the ultimate result was that we obtained more than 600 of uh, these commitments, um, which was more than a 90% increase over the number that had previously been reported in some academic research by Duncan Hollis in, I think, 2009. Yeah, so give us the high-level summary of what you found. You, you mentioned over 600 agreements. Talk to us about, you know, which are the states that were the most commonly entering into these agreements as, as you found it, which are the most frequent countries on the other side of them. What are the sort of big-picture takeaways from, from your research, just from an empirical standpoint? So just most generally, I think the big finding is that this is an incredibly vibrant field of state practice, completely at odds with the... 
uh, general presumption that states are not really actively involved in foreign relations. They are very much actively involved. And uh, I think it even goes beyond the commitments themselves. Uh, there are various forms of state activity that don't take the form of written agreements that you know I didn't even try to look into. And I think if that had taken place, we would see an even more extensive uh, body of practice out there. But in terms of what I found, generally speaking, you know, all states enter into these commitments. It's not just uh, California or New York or some of the big states with large economies. Um, they seem to be doing so more frequently in the, than they did in the past. They're not just interacting with China or with Canada or Mexico. There are more than 75 foreign countries that they have entered into, into these commitments with. Uh, the commitments themselves address an extremely wide variety of issues, everything from education to transportation to public health to human rights, even archaeology. And for the most part, these commitments have done so in ways that are not only beneficial for constituents, but also pose no, no real problem, as far as I can tell, for the U.S. federal government. You know, I think the post on lawfare certainly suggests that there are problems that arise, but I don't want to give the impression that this is always the case, or even typically so. I think most of the state activity in this area is quite benign and beneficial. Um, so those are the most uh, general findings. But going into the more specific uh, questions that you asked, you know, which countries are the most frequent entrants into these uh, commitments with U.S. states? After China, uh, it was Canada, Mexico, and a number of other kind of un unsurprising uh, countries, Japan, Germany, Taiwan was uh, one of the most common, uh, which is perhaps somewhat surprising given that it doesn't have you know, diplomatic relations with the United States and has kind of an ambiguous um, status uh, in international affairs. Uh, South Korea was common, Israel, the UK, Spain, Australia. So none of these are particularly surprising. But there were some interesting patterns within these countries that appeared. So one was that one was kind of a regional pattern. As far as I can tell, states have no commitments with most countries in Africa or the Middle East. And this is not true really of any other region in the world. We can see commitments from South American countries, you know, a, a large number of Asian countries, uh, European countries, and so forth. But there's almost none of this activity, it, or so it appears, uh, with countries in most of Africa uh, or the Middle East. Another uh, pattern within this on this issue of country parties is that rough, in roughly 40% of the cases, the foreign counterparts were not subnational jurisdictions. So they weren't entities that are comparable to U.S. states. They weren't provinces or prefectures and so forth. Rather, they were foreign sovereigns. So you know, when California or Texas entered into a commitment, it wouldn't necessarily be with another subnational jurisdiction. They might be entering into a commitment with the national government of, of France or of China. Um, I think that was a bit of a surprise. And it raises the stakes in terms of international relations, and certainly for the United States federal government as well. Uh, another, I think another uh, noteworthy pattern with respect to countries is that the countries are using these commitments seemingly to do different things. So I noticed, for example, that Spain is interested overwhelmingly in using these sorts of arrangements to promote Spanish language education in American public schools. Israel is interested mostly in promoting cooperation in industrial research and development. Most of China's agreements involve trade and investment. So all, the, all these foreign partners have different interests that they're seeking to advance through the mechanism of these arrangements. Now, when it comes to the states parties, you know, the most common by far was California. I think it had well over 100 of these commitments that it had entered into. Uh, after that, it was Maryland, Texas, Washington, New York, Massachusetts, Hawaii, Idaho, Michigan, Delaware. Um, and you can notice a clear pattern if you think about the, the geography of these states, right? All of them either have a coast or they share an international border with Canada or Mexico, which to me suggests that there might be um, a significant geographical influence on whether or not states are going to be actively engaged in this sort of activity. Uh, states that don't have these sorts of sort of geographic characteristics, you know, Kansas, for example, uh, were involved in far fewer of these commitments uh, than the states that I just mentioned. And, you know, like the foreign parties, different states are using these commitments to do different things. Most of California's, uh, for instance, address environmental protection, conservation. Most of New York's address financial or insurance regulation. 
And so there's not really a monolithic practice. States have diverse interests and they're using subnational diplomacy to pursue them in different ways. Most of these commitments, like I said, are quite benign, but they can be problematic or at least they seem to raise serious policy questions in some cases. I'll just give you a few examples. So one is uh, an arrangement between Idaho and Xinjiang province that seeks to promote uh, greater economic cooperation between the two. This um, was seemed like a, a non-issue back at the time it was signed, but it was disclosed as still operative in 2020 to me. And I think that raises questions about um, you know, consistency with recent federal government efforts to try to hold China accountable for genocide with respect to ethnic Uyghurs in Xinjiang province by limiting trade. Right? So there's a, a potential issue there. There is an agreement between Mississippi and Cuba to promote greater economic cooperation which obviously operates in some tension with the federal embargo that has been in place uh, for decades. There is uh, you know, an arrangement between Indiana and Slovakia to promote cooperation in military and defense investment. Uh, there's a similar arrangement between Mississippi and Israel. Uh, and in fact, this one contains uh, binding language that basically requires Mississippi to introduce relevant defense industries and technology to the Israeli Ministry of Defense, uh, which raises questions about compliance with uh, federal export controls. And, you know, there's a number of, uh, a, a small number, uh, but a number nevertheless of commitments with Russian subnational jurisdictions. You may have recalled that uh, President Zelensky called out U.S. cities for entering into uh, or maintaining sister city arrangements with various Russian cities. Uh, that comment appeared to overlook the reality that U.S. states are also involved in these sorts of arrangements uh, with Russian subnational jurisdictions. And there's some question as to the merits of continuing those going forward in light of the de developments that are taking place in Ukraine. So it's not necessarily the case that you know U.S. states are respecting or complying with U.S. law or federal policy in conducting these sorts of relations with foreign governments. And so when we use the phrase like commitment or agreement, are we talking about like, are these overwhelmingly binding agreements, right? Is, is there any plausible enforcement mechanism or is it is it troubling just because it, it sets into some quasi formal level of a relationship that wouldn't otherwise exist? Generally, no, they're not binding or so it seems. Many are unmistakably uh, and even explicitly non-binding. Uh, it wasn't uncommon to see a provision saying, you know, this agreement does not bind the parties outright. But many more commitments are actually kind of ambiguous. They don't really address the question squarely of whether they're binding. So it's kind of difficult to draw firm conclusions about their status as binding or not. That said, nearly 25%, nearly a quarter of them appear just by their language anyway to be binding. That is, they contained terminology like shall or must, suggesting that the parties had expectations of, of compliance and viewed the instrument as uh, setting a binding arrangement between the two sides. And some, to, to, add, uh, to elaborate even a little bit further, some are unmistakably binding. They say explicitly that they bind the parties. And so there's a, quite a wide spectrum of practice in that area. There's also variation in terms of the seriousness and the level of sophistication reflected in the drafting. So some of these have many of the features uh, that we see in other complex legal arrangements. They define their terms, they have preambles, they have severability clauses, they have dispute resolution provisions, they have clauses that set forth processes that the parties have to follow in order to terminate or amend. Um, these are things that we see in treaties, that we see in contracts, and other types of binding legal agreements. And that is quite a contrast from uh, a collection of other instruments that we see that are, you know, kind of sister state agreement type arrangements that are very much non-binding, very general and brief in their exposition of the expectations of the parties. And there's also variation moreover in terms of enforceability. Typically, the instruments say that the parties will negotiate in good faith in, in the event of a disagreement, um, if they say anything at all. But some of them provide for uh, judicial jurisdiction in specific courts 
and they waive sovereign immunity in the event of a dispute, thereby suggesting that they envision the possibility, at least, of judicial enforcement. Some provide for a termination or the expulsion of a party in the event of breach. At least one of them provided for arbitration. So there's a very wide spectrum in terms of how binding they are, how enforceable they are, how sophisticated the um, provisions are in terms of setting forth the various mechanisms that are in place to ensure compliance. And so that's a nice segue in a lot of ways to talking about the the relevant legal constraints at, at the federal level on these types of agreements, particularly from a constitutional perspective. So you, you know, in, in your law review piece, you have a bunch of stuff on this count, but could you sketch out for us just at a you know, high level, what are the constitutional provisions that weigh in on this type of activity one way or the other? So the provisions that are most direct, directly relevant are both in a part of the constitution known as Article 1, Section 10. One part of Article 1, Section 10 is known as the Treaty Clause, the Article I Treaty Clause or the Treaty Prohibition Clause. And this says very simply that no state may enter into any treaty. So one legal question that arises from this body of commitments that I collected is whether any of them qualify as a treaty in a constitutional sense. If they do, they are simply unconstitutional, invalid, and unenforceable. The other part of Article I, Section 10 that's directly relevant is something known as the Compact Clause which says that states can enter into agreements and compacts with foreign powers, but only if Congress consents, right? So the question here is whether any of the commitments that I collected qualify as agreements or compacts in the constitutional sense. And if they do, whether congressional consent was required and obtained. Those are the main legal questions that arise under the constitution sort of more tangential, but nevertheless relevant, are questions about preemption. So there are a variety of Supreme Court cases over the course of U.S. history that have made clear that federal treaties, federal statutes, and even federal foreign policy can preempt and render invalid any state activities uh, in foreign relations that conflict uh, with the, the applicable treaty or statute or policy. And so the question there is whether, whether any of these commitments might conflict with uh, you know, a federal statute or foreign policy that is in place, even if they don't violate Article 1, Section 10. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And you just mentioned there some of the, the case law and the preemption question, but to what extent is this something where we have clarity from courts about, you know, what are the actual bounds of this type of activity? Do we have any sense, either recent or or not so recent, of how courts have handled these questions? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not really an area where we have much guidance from courts. So let me take the two parts of Article 1, Section 10 separately. As for the treaty clause, the Supreme Court, at least a majority of the Supreme Court, has never offered really any guidance any definitive guidance on the meaning of the term treaty for purposes of Article 1, Section 10. And this creates a lot of uncertainty, right? It's really difficult for, you know, researchers or more importantly for state officials to know whether their commitments are compliant with the Constitution uh, and its prohibition on treaties if there is no real guidance on what qualifies as a treaty. Separately, with respect to the Compact Clause, there's also no Supreme Court majority that has pronounced on the meaning of the foreign, the term compact, at least as applied to foreign governments. There's a plurality opinion 
from uh, Chief Justice Taney from an 1840 case called Holmes versus Jennison, which adopted a very strict uh, reading of the compact clause in the context of foreign relations. There's a State Department opinion from 2001 that offers a little bit of insight. There's an early 20th century opinion from the North Dakota Supreme Court. Uh, and there's a district court, a federal district court decision from 2019 from a case called United States versus California, which was filed by the Trump administration to challenge the constitutionality of an agreement that California entered into with Quebec to cap and trade CO2 emissions. So the short answer is that although there are bits and pieces of guidance, none of it is really definitive. And this creates a lot of uncertainty for states who are trying to navigate and draft agreements uh, in accordance with Article 1, Section 10. Is there any federal statutory language bounding this activity in any way? Is there any sort of guidelines that came from a federal regulation at one point or another? No, there are no federal statutes that specifically regulate state commitments with foreign governments. Uh, But in theory, a wide range of federal statutes could invalidate state commitments under preemption doctrines, right? So if there's a federal statute that says, you know, the policy of the federal government is not to recognize, you know, Taiwan, right? If there were state commitments that did precisely the opposite of that, preemption doctrines would raise problems for those sorts of activities and likely render them invalid. So in theory, there's a a large number of these statutes that could create problems, but there's nothing specifically that regulates state commitments with foreign governments as such in the U.S. Code. The point that I would add is the, the dominant analytical move in light of this absence of authority or this scarcity of authority is to borrow from the law of interstate compacts. What's going on there is that the compact clause actually kind of has two parts. One part says that states can enter into agreements and compacts with one another if Congress consents. And then the other part says that states can enter into agreements and compacts with foreign powers if Congress consents. When I say that there's a lack of authority on the compact clause, I mean that the Supreme Court has never really elaborated on on the latter. There is a pretty significant body of Supreme Court precedent on interstate compacts. And so... Uh, analysts have tried to address the problem of a lack of authority on foreign compacts by borrowing that Supreme Court precedent that addresses the constitutionality of interstate compacts. Okay, But even so, there are uncertainties. So some argue, first of all, that this borrowing itself is inappropriate on their view that there, there are really material differences between interstate compacts and those involving foreign governments. So we should treat these two different parts of the compact clauses completely independent. And then even assuming that borrowing is okay, there's not a lot of clarity in the Supreme Court precedent on interstate compacts on what qualifies as an agreement or compact. We have some precedent, some guidance, but still quite a bit of uncertainty. And then even assuming that the the final source of uncertainty is that even assuming we have an agreement or compact that qualifies as such under the compact clause, there's often uncertainty about whether congressional consent is required. The plain text of the Compact Clause says that states have to obtain congressional consent seemingly for any agreement or compact with a foreign power but or any interstate agreement or compact. But the Supreme Court has read that language to suggest that, in fact, you don't always have to have congressional consent. You only need it if the arrangement in question has a potential impact on federal supremacy. So states have to deal with these sorts of uncertainties when they're trying to draft these commitments and make sure that they're not running afoul of constitutional uh, restrictions. All right. So I want to move in and talk a bit about the policy concerns with what's going on here. So I think reading through you know, the, the different things that you've written, maybe a helpful way of thinking about this is by breaking it down into first, each branch of the federal government and thinking about how they might be impacted by, you know, this practice and also by the the, the sort of secrecy that, that surrounds the practice. So I think that the most obvious place to start here is with the executive branch and to start within the executive branch with the State Department. So how are the State Department's interests hindered by, you know, just the pra- this practice in general, but then also by the secrecy that it entails. I remember reading in your article that at one point, I think it was in the 70s or something, that the State Department even 
commission someone to do a survey for them, not wholly dissimilar to what you just did for the purpose of them just, you know, having an awareness of what was going on here. Right. Well, just for starters, I'm not sure I would call it secrecy, in, at least insofar as that implies sort of intentionality on the part of states. I think that really what's going on here is just opacity or lack of transparency. I think the lack of information about these commitments is really just a product of lack of attention on the part of states. States just haven't made an effort to disclose rather than they have made an effort to shield. I don't think it's, at least for the most part, I don't think there's anything particularly sinister driving states to to hide these commitments uh, from the public. I think that they just haven't really made an effort to, you know, make sure that the public is aware. Um, but more to the point, I think that the primary issue for the State Department is that the State Department is, you know, in charge of managing U.S. foreign relations, and it's simply less capable of effectively doing so if it is unaware of the full spectrum of subnational diplomacy that is taking place between U.S. states and foreign governments. If relations are, in fact, more voluminous and complicated than the State Department assumes, the State Department is less well-positioned to make good choices about how to conduct foreign relations. And then so what about other components of the executive branch? You allude to this, and, and we've talked about this a couple of times in conversation here, but this practice in insofar as it you know deals with technology transfers and, and things like that, it interacts pretty awkwardly with a bunch of different executive branch tools, whether that's you know export controls or the activity of, of what we call CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., is that a correct read on things, right? There seems like a pretty obvious conflict for, you know, a small minority of, of these agreements between what states might want to do and what states might be signing themselves up to do versus the official policy of, of the federal government. Yeah, I think that's right, that there are potential issues here for other components of the executive branch as well. So let's just take um, Department of Justice, for example. In 2019, as, as I mentioned, the Trump administration sued the state of California to challenge the constitutionality of an agreement that California entered into with Quebec to cap and trade CO2 emissions. And, you know, from the perspective of the executive branch, that sort of litigation-based enforcement is important as a means of ensuring state compliance with Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. But of course, DOJ can't, you know, file these lawsuits if it's unaware of the commitments that states are entering into. Uh, this lack of information creates uh, enforcement problems. If states are entering into commitments that the federal government is not aware of, it's harder for the federal government to make sure that states are complying with Article 1, Section 10. So uh, as another example, you mentioned CFIUS. You know, I think that there's a potential issue there as well. It could find itself burdened by the review of a larger volume of proposed transactions you know, at, that result from this activity. I think it's kind of striking, in fact, that states are actively facilitating, in many cases, the very transactions that have given rise to CFIUS and that are uh, motivating its uh, review of various investment transactions that involve foreign actors. I think there are also potential risks for export controls. If states are entering into arrangements involving technologies such as you know, semiconductors, there is a, at least a greater risk that uh, the result is going to be private transactions that flout the export controls that have been established by the federal government. And what happens in a case where right, th there's an obvious conflict between, you know, export controls are often fairly concrete and, and spelled out. What happens when there's a, a clear conflict between one of these agreements that a state has entered into and a federally promulgated export control rule? Well, under the supremacy clause of the Constitution, federal law would prevail in the event of a conflict. That is, the state commitment would most likely be invalid and unenforceable. And so moving on to Congress. So I was reading through your article and found this to be, you know, it's less obvious, but also important. How are Congress's equities impacted by, by this practice and you know, by the, this sort of not knowing that surrounds the practice? Yeah, that's a really important question. So uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, the compact clause says that states can enter into agreements and compacts with foreign powers, but only insofar as Congress consents. The problem with the lack of information that has prevailed in recent years is that Congress cannot deliberate on whether to consent to any given arrangement if it doesn't know that the arrangement exists. So we have a problem 
this problem of lack of information inhibits Congress's ability to exercise its power under the Compact Clause, right? In theory, there are any there are a, a significant number of commitments out there that require Congress to deliberate on whether it should consent, but Congress is not in a good position to do that because it doesn't know that the commitments exist in the first place. And then there's the the question of federal courts or state and federal courts. So talk us through the the different issues presented by this practice for courts. Why can these things be a difficult terrain for, for courts to navigate? Yeah. So let me just answer that by giving, again, going back to the example of U.S. versus California. In the course of that litigation, the Trump administration had made arguments under Article 1, Section 10. The administration argued first that California's agreement was unconstitutional because it qualified as a treaty, and second, that it was unconstitutional uh, because it qualified as an agreement or compact that required but never obtained uh, congressional consent. This lack of information about modern practice made it difficult for the courts, the parties, for uh, amici to make informed arguments and decisions about the constitutionality of California's agreement. There was really little point of comparison. The parties, for example, and amici, I think in some cases, provided to the court uh, examples of historical agreements and compacts that supported their respective positions. But without a broader sense of the corpus of these agreements, it was difficult for the court to really draw any insight from those examples. And so the court was forced to make its decision not in light of historical practice uh, or what was customary, but rather in light of more formalistic considerations, such as the text of the Constitution, Supreme Court case law, and I think some uh, early academic treatises. So the basic problem, in other words, is that without this sense for what state practice looks like in general, uh, courts are not as well positioned to make decisions about the legality of any given arrangement. And that's particularly so because in the field of foreign relations law, historical practice often is a is viewed as a significant input in the task of interpreting the Constitution. Historical practice is viewed as at least a partial determinant of meaning in its own right. So if we don't have any sense for what historical practice looks like in this area, we uh, are not as well equipped to make a decision about not only whether any given arrangement is constitutional, but also what Article 1, Section 10 even means, right? We don't know what the Treaty Prohibition Clause means or what the Compact Clause means, or it's hard to say what they mean if we don't know how they've been applied uh, historically. And then lastly, to the states themselves, right? The, the sort of opacity here in some ways is maybe beneficial. Like you could you could think of some reasons why it's useful, even just from a resource perspective, like, you know, it means that there's fewer people having to file paperwork and make things public. But then it also comes with a bunch of drawbacks, right? This is a practice, the sort of ad hoc nature of it and the, you know, the not knowing that we keep talking about. You you mentioned that it's not a great thing for states in general. Yeah, I think there are a number of problems. Okay, so first, it limits the ability of state officials to draft and negotiate these commitments effectively. It complicates efforts to learn best practices, for example. So imagine you're in the position of uh, drafting a proposed uh, agreement with the Chinese government, and you're not really aware of what your counterparts in other states have been doing. That makes it a lot more difficult for you to know what the boundaries are, to know what sorts of clauses might be helpful to insert, right? And ultimately makes it harder for you to draft an agreement that will be lawful and effectively advance state interests. Uh, So that's one problem. It really uh, limits the sharing of best practices. Another problem is that this lack of information hinders compliance. One striking thing I found in the course of the research is that not only does the federal government really not know much about these commitments, but states themselves in many cases don't know what commitments they've entered into. One gubernatorial administration may not have a good sense for what its predecessor did in terms of entering into commitments with foreign governments. And when that's the case, there are, I think, material risks of non-compliance. Surely it's harder for a state government to comply with an agreement if it doesn't know that the agreement even exists, right? So this information creates greater risks of non-compliance on on the part of the states. And then finally, I think that uh, non-compliance is problematic for, you know, state voters. It's difficult for voters to hold state officials accountable or to reward them 
uh, for these commitments if they're not aware that the commitments even exist. So it's a sort of a democratic accountability problem in addition to a problem that limits the sharing of best practices and hinders compliance itself. So what's there to be done about it? You, in both your lawfare piece and your law review article, you sketch out some reforms that could be undertaken to maybe better position states to share and to be transparent and to you know, make sure that everyone has access to this type of information. Walk us through what, what some of those might be. So I think that there, you can view the potential reforms as falling into three categories. The first category is uh, drafting reforms. I think there are things that state officials can do better, even when they're going out and negotiating these agreements. In, in some cases, the commitments reveal a lot of sophistication and care on the part of the drafters. But in a large number of others, the commitments seem to have been drafted quite casually, uh, with very little attention to potential constitutional risks that uh, exist in this area. So I think the big first improvement, and the, frankly, the easiest to implement, is for state officials just to take these legal and constitutional questions more seriously uh, by incorporating language to, that would preempt some of the potential risks that exist. For, so, for example, if state officials routinely inserted language saying that the, this agreement is not intended to qualify as a treaty, then that would do a lot, I think, to help resolve questions about potential problems under the Article One Treaty Clause. Likewise, if they were to include language that the uh, agreement was not intended to qualify as an agreement or a compact under Article 1, Section 10, that could be helpful as well. So those sorts of improved drafting techniques, I think, would be the simplest uh, solution and one that you know, state officials could very quickly incorporate into their practice. Uh, the second category of reforms would occur at the, at the state level uh, in the form of state legislation. So North Carolina currently has a law that says that state agencies have to file copies of their commitments with the Secretary of State. California has a law that says that the governor's office has to maintain an updated list of all the commitments that are in place with foreign governments. But as far as I can tell, most state governments have no laws in place, no statutes in place that regulate the management or the disclosure of these commitments to the public. So there's no state-level transparency regime, in other words. There's nothing that says that a state, once it enters into a commitment, has to post that commitment on a website so that you know constituents can look at it and make choices about whether they support it or oppose it. So state legislatures could improve conditions by adopting legislation to ensure the more effective management and disclosure of commitments going forward. The third category of reforms would take place at the federal level, and they would take the form of a federal transparency regime. In other words, I think that Congress should enact legislation to require states to timely transmit their commitments to the State Department and require the State Department to publish them online. I think that that would uh, really improve public accountability. It would improve the federal government's uh, ability to enforce Article 1, Section 10. And it would be more efficient than having 50 different state legislatures each separately adopt legislation to advance transparency. And do we have any sense that this is a topic that members of Congress are interested in? Like, has there been activity in the past in, in this direction? Or are there anything you know, related to this area that you've seen crop up in the past, I don't know, five, 10 years? Yeah. So in the 116th Congress, there was a bill introduced in the House and in the Senate to create a database in the State Department to monitor uh, and disclose to the public all of the commitments that have been adopted. That didn't really go anywhere. And this, uh, so the sponsors, Representative Ted Lieu and Senator Chris Murphy, basically reintroduced uh, the bill in the 117th Congress in something known as the City and State Diplomacy Act with some modifications. The newer bill, rather than require the State Department to create a database, would have required the department to track engagements and at least potentially discuss them with Congress and committee hearings. Uh, that particular proposal passed the House of Representatives as part of one version of the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, but it didn't make it into the final version that President Biden signed. Uh, so there have been proposals uh, that have been introduced in Congress. There seems to be quite a bit of interest in improving federal monitoring in this area, but we haven't yet seen any actual 
adoption of legislation in, in the past several years. And so in the months and you know years ahead, what are the things that you're going to be looking out for in this space, both from a reforms perspective and also just from a, a practice perspective? Like, what are the things as states continue to enter into these agreements that you're going to be particularly engaged with? Yeah. So one thing that uh, my, re- my assistants and I will be doing is repeating our public records requests to state governments. In the absence of a federal transparency regime and and in the absence of a state transparency regime, there is a need for a private solution. And so we are trying to supply that by providing occasional supplements to the commitments that we collected. We're going to be publishing these as as a book and in a digital library in Hein Online. We sort of view this as a subnational analog to the U.S. treaty series that the State Department has published in recent years. We're going to continue to supplement that going forward. So that's one thing. I'm, you know, I'm also watching what is going to be happening with the City and State Diplomacy Act. That seems like the most natural place to incorporate a transparency regime. And I think that there is actually a, a realistic chance uh, for adoption, given the developments that have taken place in the last several years. The last thing that I'm looking out for is to see whether the executive branch might respond with greater vigilance. There was a 2015 memorandum of understanding between the U.S. government and the Chinese government that promoted subnational engagement. And I think that the U.S. kind of backed off of that a little bit, the U.S. federal government did uh, during the Trump administration. But I'm curious to see what the Biden administration might do in this space. What is the State Department and the executive branch going to do if anything, in the absence of legislative intervention from Congress. Conceivably, there are ways that the federal government, the State Department in particular, could help to manage the risks that arise from state engagement in foreign relations without having uh, a legislative solution. So I'll be looking out for that as well. And that is all the time we have for today. Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And while you're at it, grab some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.